Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. I've waited a long time to say that. And I don't mean just in this sermon series. I mean since I was called into the gospel ministry, I look forward to saying, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. If you are familiar with the Bible, and I say Hebrews chapter 11, you are probably aware of how cherished and valued this chapter of Scripture has been to the saints that have gone before, I hope to you. And if you are unfamiliar with it, I hope after our study over the next two or three weeks of this particular chapter that you too will view it as uh, something that you cherish and value for what it teaches us about faith, the gift of faith. This is called the Hall of Faith, chapter 11. And today I'm going to focus just on the first three verses as an introduction to all those characters uh, of the Bible, of history, that follow. I want to also remind us that although preconceived notions of Hebrews 11 are not all wrong, we must also recognize that Hebrews 11 comes in a greater context, the context of the book of Hebrews written to a particular people at a particular time. Uh, in, in to quantify this, let's remember again what the first 10 chapters are essentially about. Christ, his superiority, the way he fulfills all that, ha that has been forecasted coming up to this moment. Jesus is here now. People are scared because they have turned to Christ, and they're being persecuted for it. And before, they had a visible sign of their faith in the temple, the presence of God among his people. It was thought of. Then also there was the priesthood, those priests that they came to know personally and saw and uh, viewed them as a mediator of sorts between them and God. This visible uh, sign of stability in their minds anyways. And then the sacrifice itself, which they would bring uh, their own animals to the priest to have sacrificed, uh, all this actual seeing of the symbols, actually participating in the rites and rituals, there's a certain amount of security that brought to the believer. And then when Jesus comes, the initial response is, praise God that all of this is fulfilled in the one great high priest, who is God, not just a symbol of the presence of God, who is the great high priest, the mediator between man and God. Praise God for this, and praise God that he's the sacrifice. But that initial joy soon, fa soon faded when persecution set in. And they were being confronted because they said they trusted Christ and renounced an old way. Their own people rejected them for their rejecting the temple and the priesthood. The nations looked at them as a new cult and focused their ire on them now. And so they're in this state of needing encouragement. They need to persevere, and they want to know how. And the author of Hebrews gives them this glorious passage that essentially talks about people just like you and I, that God works a work of faith through so that they do great things for the kingdom, all because they're looking ahead to what they cannot see, but they know is true because of the testimony that God gives them in his Son, by obvious reason, but also by the inward work of the Holy Spirit to confirm to them that what they can't see is actually true and worth dying for if need be. Hebrews 1, 11 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's pray. Father, we confess uh, that we agree with the words of Paul to Timothy when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote, all scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Lord, make us, the people of God here gathered, equipped for every good work, all for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Since we are moving into a study of how faith moved some of our well-known Old Testament predecessors, it is important that we gain a proper biblical definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1 does not provide a thorough or complete definition of faith. It is part of the overall scriptural picture given to us concerning faith. So when we study this passage about faith, and it is so uh, prevalently focused on faith, we should stop at this moment and consider the place of faith in God's plan of salvation in your life. So that as we read Hebrews 11, we can interpret it in the most biblical way, because in the most biblical way is the most truthful way, and that's the way in which it will most affect our lives for Christ's glory. Now, you will hear people use the word faith often, believers and unbelievers alike. You will hear unbelievers say uh, that you should just have faith, or why did something happen? They'll say, well, I had just had faith that it would. In fact, in a reasonably popular uh, talk show, the host always ends the show by saying, keep the faith. And what he actually means is stay optimistic. Be positive about humankind. So the word faith is used among unbelievers or people that are only mildly religious to mean something altogether different than the scripture outlines as faith. Unfortunately, believers, all of us are probably guilty of this, also use faith in the wrong way often. Some will say, after a trial, it was my faith that got me through. Faith in faith. My faith got me through. Or uh, worse yet, and really hideously so, people will say, I was not healed because I did not have enough faith. Or I was healed, or this or that thing happened because I had faith. And even well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ will use this unbiblical notion of faith in describing God's action with them. So it's important when we discover all that is said in Hebrews 11 about faith, that we recognize this is just one small picture, and for a moment, back up and best understand what faith is and how God uses it in our lives. Now, first, I would like to consider the definition of faith. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. You can see how this is incomplete as a holistic definition because one would rightly ask, where does this assurance come from and where is this conviction wrought? It's from God. And that's true, we see, of the totality of the scripture's teaching on faith. Machen says rightly about Hebrews 11.1 1, that these words are not a definition or a complete account of faith. They tell us what faith is, but they do not tell all that it is. And they do not separate from all that it is not. So Hebrews 11 serves more to describe the power of faith than offering a full definition of it. Still, it would be wise for us to consider a more thorough biblical definition. Our shorter catechism in our confession of faith says it very simply like this. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Most of us would readily recognize and identify with the second part of the catechism's answer. We receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered us in the gospel. True, right? Absolutely. 
It's a call to the gospel. But don't forget, the catechism writers understood biblically the totality of the teaching on faith, and that's why they start the answer to the question this way. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. Where do you gain grace? Where do you get grace from yourself? All of God. It's a saving grace. It's a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. In essence, the evidence or fruit of faith is the things you do with it. For the thing you say about it, or I, I have faith. Well, if you do, it's because it's been given to you by God. And if you do, it will show itself in how you live and what you do, the decisions you make. Turn with me for a moment to better understand this relationship between grace and faith to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Remember the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer, biblically speaking, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. Then when we look at Ephesians 2, there are many passages that the catechism writers and the confession writers will cite to support what they're saying biblically. I'll just choose the most important one to show its biblical uh, nature and how we can trust that this is the truth. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You are familiar with these verses, but often probably focus on the grace component because see how faith is related so closely with this. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now consider verse 8 very closely for a moment. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What is this referring to? It's referring to having been saved. How have you been saved? By grace through faith. It's not technically accurate to say you're saved by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the instrument God uses to apply justification. His grace extended to us sinners. What's grace? God's favor shown to those who only deserve his judgment and wrath. How does he show us his grace? How does he apply us his grace? By giving us faith in the one who provides salvation. We're saved by grace, brothers and sisters, by God's grace through faith. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Salvation by grace through faith. So grace and faith are the gift of God. A gift is from him. We don't earn it. We don't make any part of it effective. God gives us grace through faith. This is so crucially important, and you may think I'm splitting uh, hairs a bit here, but I really believe it's the fountainhead from which everything else you see about God's salvation flows. If you recognize that it is God who is entirely sovereign in salvation, even to the point where he gives you faith, then you're on the road to a proper understanding of God and ultimately a greater glory going to God. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. No one can boast about any aspect of salvation. One cannot even say, yes, God did it all, but I believed in him. I trusted in him. I chose him. No, you didn't. He did it all. That's the gospel. Anything less is not the gospel. And it should tweak you a little bit. Because in my humanity, I hate grace. People hate grace. 
because it says that they couldn't do it themselves. That's why. It's powerful when you understand that faith is the gift of God. Faith is the instrument that God uses. It's the rope that ties us to Jesus. This is the essence of the last part of verse 8 once more of Ephesians 2. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. John Piper, in commenting on Ephesians 2.9, wrote this. Faith is a gift of God, so that no one may boast. <clears throat> Piper says, the last bastion of pride is the belief that we are the originators of our faith. While preaching a sermon on Sunday, March 5th, 1871, Spurgeon said this, Faith, wherever it exists, is in every case, without exception, the gift of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Never yet did a man believe in Jesus with the faith here intended, except the Holy Spirit led him to do so. He has wrought all our works in us, and our faith too. Faith is too celestial a grace to spring up in human nature till it is renewed. Faith is in every believer the gift of God. Gresham Machen wrote, The New Testament never says that a man is saved on the account of his faith, but always that he is saved through his faith or by means of his faith. Faith is merely the means which the Holy Spirit uses to apply the into the individual soul the benefits of Christ's death. And finally, the eminent uh, preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in commenting on Ephesians 1 and 2, wrote this beautifully. Why am I what I am as a Christian, Jones says. There is only one answer. I have been highly favored by the grace of God. I give him all the glory. He that glories, let him glory in the Lord, quoting 1 Corinthians 1.31. Is this your view of salvation, Jones asks. Are you giving the entire glory to God, or are you reserving a little for yourself? Are you saying that it is your belief that saves you? If so, you are detracting from the glory of God. The glory is entirely his. To the praise of the glory of his grace, in which he has highly favored us in the beloved. Faith is the gift of God. Now back to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now this makes entire sense when you recognize it is the gift of God that gives us assurance and conviction about things that we cannot see. And I am not bothered in the least that I can't initially explain that rationally. I think it has a rational explanation, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't bother me at all, nor make my position any weaker to simply say that it's the gift of God that I would believe. Hebrews 11.1 1 contributes to our biblical understanding by giving us two important uh, features about faith. First, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction, secondly, of things not seen. You may have remembered the King James translation saying, the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. That's just not the best way of putting the language. It is better to say it the way the ESV has translated it. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the persuasion of things not seen. Let's consider these two terms just a little more closely. First, when you look at the word assurance, it comes from hypostasis. And hypostasis means to stand under, that, uh, to understand. And literally, I don't know if you've ever thought of understand this way, but you can stand under it because you're confident 
uh, what is over you, what you believe, what you're committed to. There's an assurance that comes that is given to us by God because faith is given to us by God. So it's assurance, but it's also conviction. It's being sure of something, but it's also being persuaded of something. Assured, which is less, easier, uh, less easy to quantify, yet persuasion has to do with you've been persuaded. God has shown himself to be real. This is where reason is part. He shows by the history of his redemption, by the revelation he gives that we read objectively, but always and everywhere with the ministry of his Holy Spirit, opening eyes that could not see otherwise. We're assured and convicted of the things we cannot see based on God's faithfulness, based on his testimony to us. And see why this is so important to the Hebrew believer now, uh, who is headed towards certain persecution, possibly death, the loss of property, the loss of loved ones. They have to have something that keeps them persevering, and that's true belief, genuine assurance and conviction that the promises, the ultimate promises of glory that God promises will come, will happen, and they can bear up under whatever trial it is that they're having at that time because of it. Powerful is faith in the life of the believer. <coughs> I want you to consider <clears throat> for a moment combining verse 39 in chapter 10 of Hebrews with verse 1. There was no verse division. This is just how we have divided it. But it was one thought. If you remember the last part of chapter 10, look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Taken as a whole, we can better understand how important this reality that the gift of, God's, of, of faith from God propels in us uh, preservation of our souls or preservation of our faith and the fruit that comes from it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I would ask you personally what promotes perseverance in your Christian walk. What motivates you to holiness? What motivates you to moving on in that road of discipleship when so many things are difficult in your life, in our lives? I would say to you that you cannot move further in your walk with the Lord until a proper grasp on the gospel of grace is had. I think many people are genuinely saved, obviously, uh, yet they don't fully appreciate the total sovereignty of God and salvation. And it is that important because when you don't get past that point, there's always this little stronghold or this little foothold that even if it's 90-10, 10% of you, it, that 10% grows as you grow and it, becomes to, it starts to cloud your overall walk more and more. And you have to, at some point, no matter how long you've been claiming Christ as your Savior, go back and recalibrate to the sovereignty of God that leaves none of you in it. And from that point where you recalibrate, you could then start your walk again, in essence. It's not that it takes as long to get caught up, because now you start seeing everything that you've walked through with new eyes. All before, I thought it was me, or it was up to me. It was my performance. It's what I did. It's what I didn't do. When I see it's all of God, now you can reinterpret the things God has brought you through in your life, and you move on. But you can't move on until you see the sovereignty of God in your salvation, in giving you faith a completely God-centered gospel. Because it's not good news if we're in it, brothers and sisters. It's good news because it's all of him. And that's the starting point. And I can't say more now just for sake of time, but if you have not read the book Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges, pick that book up. There's several other books I'd recommend to you as well, but that's the best one on a modern reading level that really emphasizes living confidently in God's unfailing love, his elective love. So please read that if you have not gone past this point or you're still struggling and persevering. Why am I keeping on? I'd submit to you that you might be on the performance treadmill. 
you might still be thinking that you have something to do with your salvation, and that's made its way into your sanctification. To now you think, I've chosen God, now I have to really buckle those bootstraps and work harder in my sanctification, and you're failing miserably at it. And you will, because you haven't started at the true full gospel. That's why Paul says to the Galatians, are you so foolish, he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Don't you see you were born again, Galatians? Why are you so foolishly going back to all these different rules now to better sanctify yourself? He says it's foolish to do that, to give up all that has been given, the freedom that has been purchased by strapping yourself again with rules as a means to somehow be perfected. This is the <coughs> the beauty of what Toplady says in Rock of Ages. Just a little bit in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Is that the words? He's right. Nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing, Toplady says. Simply to thy cross I cling. Faith defined is God's gift to us, faith. Faith approved, look at verse 2. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Now, I hope we understand by the word approval, we don't mean that we gain God's approval by faith. When we understand that faith is a gift, it will be approved by God because it's his that he's given to you. Now, this is a rather crude uh, illustration, but I think it shows to some degree what this means. Every year, as we celebrate Christmas, my mother-in-law will pick out a present, and they have an agreement. My father-in-law and her have an agreement. It's an interesting way to do it. She goes and gets what she wants. She wraps it, and it's from him. And she loves it every time she gets it, and he's happy that she loves it. God's given us faith, and he approves of it because it's his faith that works itself out in righteousness in our life. He loves it because it's his righteousness working itself in someone that has no business manifesting righteousness. That's the manifestation of God's glory, that I could show forth Christ somehow, why? Because God works through me with his gift and then manifests it to the world. And it brings glory to God, none to Tony, especially when you analyze it closely. This is faith approved. This is why the people of old, if you will, had their faith approved. Because they were living out what God had given them. Literally, the verse means... For by the elders, instead of the people of old, the word is presbyteros, which we get, from, we get Presbyterian from. The elders receive their verification. By faith, the elders receive their confirmation that they were the people of God. To say that is their, they received their commendation is to say that they were verified as God's covenant-keeping people by the fruit that was manifested in their life. You know all those people. Enoch. Noah. Moses, that snake, Jacob. Yet, it is said here that his faith was used to show forth righteousness. But you know the, total, the totality of all their lives. In fact, this is not unknown to the author of Hebrews, that we would all have the entire testimony of all these individuals. And I don't know about you, but as soon as I see these guys listed in the Hall of Faith, I go and say, wait a minute. The Hall of Faith, Moses? Boy, he killed a guy. I mean, Jacob, uh, the Israelite, Rahab. But the message to us is that's the point. These broken vessels can be used to manifest God's grace because he's doing the work through them. And so it really ought to be better called 
the hall of God's faithfulness in regular people more than the hall of faith. That's what gives me extreme hope. When I look to just the example of Jesus, I'm overwhelmed with his holiness. I'm grateful to God for it. They impute his righteousness to me. But there's a sense in which when I see regular people who eat breakfast the same way I do, they struggle with the same things I do, even if thousands a year before me, and I see that God can do the work through them, then I see God doing it through me. It's a powerful example to us, not an unattainable one. In fact, that's the point of this encouragement from the writer of Hebrews to the people who are so seriously persecuted. Listen, regular people were used of God to bring forth this work of faith that God works in them in their righteousness. And some great things were done through them, even as bad off as they were in their humanity. Real faith means faithfulness to God's commands. Really, Hebrews 11 is about faith and its fruits to God's glory. Remember again, Ephesians 2, verse 10. You don't have to turn there, but remember what it says. For we are his workmanship. After explaining that we're saved by grace through faith, it's the gift of God, not our works. We can't boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are we saying that Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites, and Rahab were all shown to be God's people by virtue of living out their faith in perfect obedience? It's not about perfect obedience. They did one or, one or two big highlight things that made the highlight real. But God did it in broken people, and he can do it in us, and he continues to do it. He hasn't changed the way he works. He still is dealing with the same crackpots, as some people say, jars of clay. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Take 10.29 of Hebrews down to 11.2 and listen to what it says. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. Martin Luther said it well. The true living faith which the Holy Spirit instills into the heart simply cannot be idle. Tozer said it by adding his insight. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience. Why? It's God's faith. That's why. Nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are opposite sides of the same coin. In the next several weeks, we're going to look closely at these various people that are listed in the 40 verses of Hebrews chapter 11. But let's never move off this point that faith is given to us by God, and it is ultimately used by God to bring glory to himself through your changed life. Let me just give you this particular application, if you will, regarding faith and how faith bears fruit in your life, if you're wondering how this specifically uh, addresses you. I would say there are three fruits I'd like you to think about that faith brings in your life. First of all, the, the fruit of conviction, I would call it. Conviction about yourself, conviction about the church, conviction about the world. I mean by yourself, about yourself, when God opens your eyes and gives you faith, you can now see things about yourself that aren't so pretty. Uh, they leave us very discontent. Sin in our lives that needs to be changed. And praise God, he doesn't open it all up to us at once. He reveals portions of our life. And I've had many people say to me, it was so much easier before I became a Christian. Now it's so much more difficult. And what they really mean to say is now things are open to them and they see how badly they've offended God's holiness. And how even though they're bought with a price now and stand as God's child, 
they are dissatisfied with how they're acting as God's child, and that's what brings that wrestling. Because if you ask them the follow-up question, would you go back to where you were before? No, they'll say. I was lost. Being lost isn't fun either. It's worse. I just didn't know it. But it's a legitimate thing to say it's tougher now. It's tougher because of the standard of God now bearing upon us. And that's why, by the way, it's so important that we go back to God being the one who saves. Because you'll, you'll get uh, downtrodden really fast if you think you're somehow called to earn this now. I saved you. Now, now buck up. You know, and do your part, Tony. That's pretty despairing. But the work of faith gives me a new conviction, gives me a new perspective about myself, about the church. There'll be times where you're frustrated with the church as a whole. I don't mean necessarily a particular local church. I mean just the work of the church and the lack of overall obedience and involvement on the part of the church in the world. But also there'll be times of great encouragement that you will gain on knowing that God's expanding his church despite us in watching the great victories that the church has in our day and has had. You'll have conviction because of faith about the world. There will be things in the world that, quite frankly, make you nauseous and sick when you consider where we're heading. Hopefully that translates into action as one who is in the church. But this new conviction, these new eyes that you see, could be the reason why you see some issue some way and your very next-door neighbor, who you love and well and would call a good person, is on the opposite side of the aisle. Because eyes of faith have been granted. Then other fruit of faith is encouragement. You'll be encouraged to know that God is in control of all events, even when you don't understand why he has worked things the way he has. You'll have a God perspective on things. From faith comes conviction, but from faith also comes an encouragement that people without it cannot truly experience. Finally, faith bears this fruit in your life. I call it stability. That is, the things that are temporal, the things that are fleeting in this world, don't shake you as much when they're lost or when they seem, uh, when they seem to waver. Uh, you're not tied to things that change, that, that wither and die. Because you see the world from eternity's perspective. That these years on, in, on this earth are very short. And that we ought to be very careful about how we redeem the time. Because we want to do things for an eternal perspective. I think that grants stability now. When you look to the future with that long view, you have stability now that you would not have normally. That's part of the essence of the Hebrews message. Look ahead to eternity. Despite the persecution you're facing, look ahead to the victorious kingdom future and what you'll be part of forever and ever. That should give you strength now to put a bear up under whatever it is that comes your way in these temporal days. Faith bears fruit. It's God's faith given to us, and it bears fruit. It always bears fruit. That's true of all the people that we'll study in these upcoming weeks. Finally, verse 3 makes a reference that we can all relate with and I think is very helpful in grasping this concept of faith that can be elusive. Verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is important. I think it really gives us a grasp on <clears throat> the nature, the supernatural nature of faith. For instance, for you who are believers, who've trusted Christ, for me to read a statement to you against the backdrop, especially of our day, of, of the religion of humanism and all that promotes and prompts uh, those things that our society calls science, uh, for me to say to you that the universe was created by the word of God, the word of his power, and that what is seen is not made of, uh, was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, God created the world out of nothing. For me to tell you who, is, who are believers 
you would not struggle with that. That is not a problem. Now, we may debate about what it all looked like from that point. That's what we tend to do, spend a lot of time debating that. But I don't think any Christian really argues with the fact that God's the creator and made everything out of nothing. I know people struggle after that point, and we'll probably debate till Jesus comes back on some points. But I don't think for most believers it's very difficult to just take that simple fact that God created everything out of nothing. We believe it. Why? Well, it does make reasonable sense, but not reasonable sense the same way we deduce things. Just simply put, if you look around, come on. I mean, seriously. It's an embarrassment to me, this whole intelligent design thing. I mean, it's indicative of the humanism, humanistic religion that dominates the public sector. But for Christians, uh, this is just, it's so insufficient. Just the teaching of intelligent design is insufficient. It's great. It's a starting point. It's elementary. I mean, and it's, it has as much reason attached to it as any of these crazy schemes that are coming up. I just read an article two days ago where they found a skull that looked like a monkey skull. had a hole in it. And what they surmise from the hole in the monkey skull is that man must have at one time been hunted by birds. Reasonable, right? No, it's not. But it'll be in a textbook soon because it comes from a different religion, a religion that's expected and accepted. So now it comes from the scientific community. I mean, he found a monkey skull with a hole in it. That's all he found. That's not reasonable. I'll tell you what's reasonable is that I would look at a giraffe and I would look at, I would look at a mosquito and say that a designer had to do this. Who would make this long neck creature for what purpose in this blood-sucking thing except for a designer who knew what he was doing? I mean, these are common sense, basic things to you and I. And I would submit to you the real essence is faith. And I don't mean a mindless faith or, or, or a leap of faith. I'm not saying that. It's reasonable. But ultimately, you can't see if your God is yourself. And that's what humanism is, and that's what drives what we're seeing today. I can go on another tangent on that, but I won't. That's why we have a Christian school. That's why we disciple our children. Because when the world kids rock bottom with their ignorance and thinking themselves to be wise, they continue to become fools. Christians who are thinking rightly, applying the full levels of their intellect as God has given them, they will be ready to lead. And we must be ready for that day because it's coming quicker and quicker. The religion of humanism meets a dead end over and over again, and it's only a matter of time before that shows itself for what it is. Romans 1.22 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Brothers and sisters, creation is one of the many ways we can just sense and grasp how it is that faith makes all the difference. It's from God. It's how we see things. It's totally supernatural. And it's the way God works through us and in us and ultimately to change the world. I want to conclude by reading for you the Westminster Confession of Faith. I know you're saying, oh, exciting. It is. You've got to listen to this. Turn to page 856 in the back of your hymnal. I'll end with reading this. We have a wonderful confession, brothers and sisters, and despite the modern trend away from lengthy confessions, you know, most churches will have like nine things they believe now, this Westminster Confession is a wonderful uh, explanation of what the Bible teaches, and it's very, very valuable for us. I encourage you to, to read it and study it and consider it, challenge it with 
the scriptures. Go to the verse references that are listed with these explanations. But I close with Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, of saving faith. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word and for the authority of God himself, for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often and in many ways assailed and weakened but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we do confess and profess that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, may we go forth as a people who have been bought with a price and given a great commission. And it is by your power that we can go forth and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, correct our teaching where it is not biblical. May any word that I have spoken that is not according to your word, uh, may it fall from the listener's ears, and only that which will bring glory to you reside. Pray this for Christ, for his glory. Amen. Our hymn of response 358, the first three verses. Let's stand as we prepare for the table of the Lord. Uh, for all the saints, a great hymn that speaks of the way God has worked his faithfulness through those who have come.